If we're honest with ourselves, I think that uh, we'll admit that it's, it's tough to receive correction and criticism from just about anyone. Uh, generally speaking, correction and criticism don't, don't really sit that well with us, do they? Especially if we do not have a particularly strong relationship with our critic, it's easy to respond unkindly. We might say something like, what gives you the right? Or, or who, did, who died and made you king? Or, uh, or who do you think you are? Maybe you feel that way about preachers sometimes. Uh, maybe you feel that way about another Christian. Uh, even if we don't ask, who do you think you are? Uh, we might be thinking it. And if we're not thinking it, the posture of our hearts may very well be oriented in that direction. We might be oriented more toward rejection than reception when it comes to correction and criticism. Sometimes our, our gut in instinct is to kind of verbally shoot at the messenger and disregard the message. A, a couple of years ago, the elders of Arlington Baptist were, were reading through a little book by Jeremy Rennie called Church Elders. Uh, in this little book, Rennie writes, quote, Guard your heart from defensiveness, anger, and dismissiveness. Work to sustain love and compassion toward your detractors. When you meet with a disgruntled brother or sister, listen carefully. I have found over the years that even my most angry, merciless critics usually have a point. It may be an overstated point, expressed in immature and sinful ways, but they are usually responding to something I need to face. It's a good word for me to remember. Perhaps it's a good word for you too to remember. You know, we've recently started studying through the book of Isaiah. And in the first couple of studies, we've seen the prophet Isaiah come out and be pretty critical of the ancient people of God. Isaiah has told the people of Jerusalem and Judah that they're filled with sin and that they're worthy of judgment. Isaiah was likely an unpopular preacher. Uh, this passage that we hope to study together this morning really answers the questions of Isaiah's critics. Isaiah chapter 6 answers the question, what gives you the right to say these kinds of things to us? And the answer that the text gives is this. Isaiah has been commissioned by the holy God to speak these words to the people of Israel. Isaiah well recognizes that he is not the king, but he speaks for the king of heaven. And so we should listen to him. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to, to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 571. 571. And while you're turning there, let me just remind us of the book of Isaiah's situation in the Bible itself. The Bible is a book of books, but it is fundamentally one book which communicates one message. The Bible is the true story of God creating the world and all that is in it. He made man and woman in his image, but sadly they rebelled against him. And in the face of their rebellion, God promised the first man and the first woman that he would judge their sin and that he would redeem them from it. And as the storyline of the Bible presses on in the Old Testament, the rebellion of mankind grows. God's promise of judgment is reiterated and his promise of redemption is clarified until it culminates in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. 
The book of Isaiah is situated in that Old Testament context where the sinfulness of man and the growing hope of redemption is being presented. One of the striking things about the Old Testament is mostly about the ancient people of God, the people of Israel. They were a people upon God, upon whom God had especially poured out His love. He, he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He gave them a place to live in, in the promised land of Canaan. And He even gave them a king to rule over them. God lived among them in the temple. And one of the things that we have discovered in our study of Isaiah so far is that you can be near to God in terms of physical proximity, but at the same time be far away from Him in your heart. This was what was true of the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem and Judah, where the temple, God's dwelling place, was located. They were physically near Him, but their hearts were far from Him. And that's why the Lord called and commissioned the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah's message could be summed up in his name, which means God is salvation. And Isaiah communicates this message by recounting the fact that the people of Judah and Jerusalem have sinned against God. And as a consequence of their sin, judgment through exile is coming. God will throw the people of Israel out of their land, just like he threw Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden for their sin. And all of this raises the question, what gives Isaiah the right to tell Israel that they're going to face God's judgment. Isaiah chapter 6 answers this question. Read Isaiah chapter 6 now. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. 
like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. What gives Isaiah the right to proclaim this message of judgment and mercy? Isaiah was confronted by the holy God. He was convicted that he was unclean, just like the people of Jerusalem and Judah. And at the end of the day, he was commissioned by the holy God to go and preach this message. Isaiah doesn't merely have the right to proclaim this message. He has the responsibility to do so. And we're going to study these verses under three headings. Confronted by the Holy God. Convicted of sin. And commissioned to preach. And those three headings will form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Let's turn now and consider our first point. Confronted by the Holy God. And here we're particularly thinking about the first five verses of chapter 6. And without a shadow of the doubt, the central character in the first five verses of chapter 6 is the living Lord. But before we see what Isaiah saw, Isaiah tells us when he had this vision. Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne in the year that King Uzziah died. Isaiah gives us a historical marker for when this vision took place because he wanted his readers and us to know that this really happened in history. Isaiah really was confronted by the living Lord in the 8th century, in 740 B.C., the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah had reigned for king uh, for roughly 52 years. That was a considerably long time compared to the length of many other reigns of the kings of, of Israel and Judah. This vision, however, is not most concerned with King Uzziah. It is most concerned with, verse 5, the king, the Lord of hosts. This king is the king, we're told there in verse 1, who is seated upon a heavenly throne. He is high and lifted up. And the robe of this great king fills the heavenly temple. This king, we're told there in verse 2, is served by angels, by seraphim. And they do not merely serve him, but they also sing to him there in verse 3. This king is worshipped and adored. In the worship of this king, his holiness is thrice proclaimed and his glory is said to fill the whole earth. Who is this king? Well, his king, according to the Apostle John, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we learned last week when we read from John chapter 12, verse 41. Isaiah said these things, John writes, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And Isaiah was writing about, uh, John was writing about Jesus. Isaiah saw and spoke of Jesus. But how is this vision possible? When we know from elsewhere in God's Word that man cannot look on God and live. Exodus 33.20 makes that plain. Well, How does Isaiah see the Lord? Well, he sees Him in a vision, in a divinely given vision. Whatever that means, it was obviously a unique experience for the purpose of calling and commissioning Isaiah to proclaim God's message as a prophet. God doesn't tend to speak to us this way anymore. No, the writer of the Hebrews makes this plain. He tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, how God speaks to us. The writer of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. See, in these last days, God speaks to us by His Son, who is revealed to us in and through God's Word, the Bible. Nevertheless, 
because Isaiah was a prophet of long ago, as the writer of Hebrews said, he received a vision. Isaiah's vision, interestingly enough, is lacking in the details that we're really interested in. Instead of being told what, what everything looked like, what did that robe look like? No, instead of being told what everything looked like, we're told what everything sounded like. Consider verse 4. A mere voice shakes the foundations of the threshold. And this mention not only of the shaking of the foundations, but also of the heavenly house and temple being filled with smoke is really completely unsurprising. This image of shaking and smoking is an image we've seen before in the Bible. Listen to what we find uh, at a display of God's glory from Exodus chapter 19, verses 18 and 19. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. The whole mountain trembled greatly. The sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. I would not be surprised to find that every one of us here have experienced a storm so fierce and a thunder so close that we have felt the ground beneath us move. Isaiah has recounted his vision of the Lord in such a way that though it's lacking in specific details, we feel its force. It is a vision that does not encourage us to recreate it in our own mind's eye, but to rehear it. And what have we heard? What was it that the angels have sung concerning the all-powerful God? The angels, while covering themselves, shielding themselves, protecting themselves from the glory and holiness of God, proclaim His glory and holiness. Verse 3, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. I don't know about you, but I'm fascinated by the structure of their proclamation. It begins with holiness, it ends with gloriousness, and God is anchored there in the middle. That title, Lord of Hosts, connects God to the people of Israel. The term hosts was the term that God used to describe the people of Israel. As he, he brought them out of Egypt. He brought them out by their hosts. He's their Lord. He's the Lord of hosts. This God of Israel is holy in and of Himself. And He makes His glory known throughout the whole earth. What does, what does this mean? What does it mean for God to be holy? And what does it mean for the, for the whole earth to be full of His glory? In fact, let's begin there. What does it mean for the whole earth to be full of God's glory? It means that the whole earth, every square inch of this planet... And I think we can even say this universe speaks of His majesty, His greatness, His weightiness. This earth reveals that He is glorious. It reveals that He's worthy of all possible honor, confidence, and love. The whole earth tells us, proclaims to us, calls us to worship and praise Him. Psalm 19.1 The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Romans chapter 1 verses 19 and 20 For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Still, we're leaving something out if we leave things there. One of the most amazing ways in which God fills the earth with His glory is seen in the fact 
that he has filled it with humans who bear his image. So we read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Of everything else in God's creation, after God created, he said that it was good. But when God made man and woman after his image and likeness, he said that it was very good. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. In, in Psalm 8, we're, we're even told, we learn that God has crowned man with glory and honor. And that this brings God glory and honor. An attack on another human being, whether verbal or physical, is an attack on God's glory. Indeed, because of His creation generally, and man specifically... God's name is proclaimed as majestic in all the earth. So you see, of everything that has been made, nothing was made without Him. And because it was made by Him or through Him, it was made for Him and to Him. The whole earth testifies to the greatness and glory of God. The angels proclaimed that He was glorious, but they also proclaimed that He was holy. The holiness of God is not insignificant. We know that by the mere fact that the angels describe Him as holy, not once, not twice, but three times. Their repetition tells us that they mean to emphasize this attribute of God. It's as if they are audibly underlining, italicizing, and bolding this attribute of God for us. God's holiness is an essential attribute of His character and being. He cannot be God without being the holy God. And the word holy means set apart. In particular, it has an ethical dimension. God is completely set apart from sin, wickedness, and evil. Sin is not in His person, and it cannot even be in His presence. God is holy in all that He is and in all that He does. God is holy in thought. He is holy in word, and He is holy in deed. When we reflect on God's holiness, we come to see that He is not like us. Indeed, we come to see that there is no one like Him. He is holy. This is what Isaiah was confronted by. The glory and holiness of God. And, and when you think of God, do you think of Him as holy and glorious? And do you think of Him as holy and glorious as He defines holy and glorious? Do you recognize that He cannot permit sin in His presence? And does that reality, that God is holy and glorious, make you fearful or faithful, concerned or confident? Having been shown who God is, Isaiah came to see who he was. In the presence of God, Isaiah was convicted of his sin. So let's turn now and consider our second point. Convicted of sin. And as we do, uh, let's read verses 5 through 7 again. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 5 to 7. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then 
one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. It was a great French theologian who observed that nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. And he went on to say, It is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating Him to scrutinizing Himself. That is precisely what we see taking place here with Isaiah, isn't it? So shouldn't we learn from Isaiah's confrontation by the Holy God? And how we ought to perceive ourselves and our standing before Him. What happens in these verses is plain. Isaiah sees himself for who he really is before the Lord and mercifully the Lord purifies him of his unrighteousness. This vision does not make Isaiah haughty. It makes him humble. He even identifies with the people that he has been criticizing and correcting. In verse 5, Isaiah begins by uttering a woe upon himself. Woes in the prophetic literature of the Bible are are oracles and declarations of judgment. When a prophet utters a woe, he is making clear the divine curse hangs over the head of a people. And that divine and just destruction is coming. Isaiah utters woes nearly 15 times in his book. He has already uttered eight of those woes over the people of Jerusalem and Judah. And now, in light of the Lord's glory and holiness... He has seen who he is. That's what he says there near the end of verse 5. Woe is me for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It is precisely because he has seen the King, the Lord of hosts, that he recognizes that he is lost. You see, that is how we rightly see our sinfulness. We do not see our sinfulness when we compare ourselves to other people. We say things, you know, look, I'm not perfect but I'm not Hitler. Well, that's great. We're we're all personally grateful that you're not Hitler, but that's not the point. The point is that you're not like God. We're not like God. We can pick any other human being on this earth and compare ourselves to them, but that's not the point. The point is, do we see ourselves, our own character, in light of God's character? It's precisely because Isaiah has seen the king and heard what the lips of the angels have said about this great king that he recognizes he is a man of unclean lips and he lives amongst a people of unclean lips. Does that not sound like our day? Why does Isaiah speak of lips Perhaps it's because our lips often reveal what's in our hearts. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. Sometimes we actually say what we're thinking and believing. And sadly, what we say sometimes reveals the darkness of our hearts. That's why Jesus would say just a few verses earlier from that phrase, out of the overflow of the hearts, the mouth speaks. 
That's why Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 12, verse 37, your words condemn you. Do your words condemn you, friend? What do your words say about your heart? Have you confessed the uncleanness of your lips and your heart? Reflect on what happens next with Isaiah. After Isaiah confesses that he is a sin-filled man, we read this word in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 6, then. Take, take note that confessing our sinfulness before God is only the beginning. For then he does something about it. Verse 6, then. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Are you not amazed by this? Shouldn't God's reaction to Isaiah's confession actually encourage each of us to confess our sin? Isaiah has seen that God is holy and that sin and sinners cannot be in His presence. He confesses his sin and then he finds pity, pardon, and peace with God. In pity and love, the holy God sends one of His servants, one of the seraphim, to purge and purify Isaiah's unclean lips. And we should not doubt that only his lips were purified that day. For our lips stand as a gateway for our heart. Isaiah's lips were purified, but so was his heart. And isn't that what you want? Don't you want a pure heart? Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Don't you want a pure heart? Don't you want to see God? Friends, the only way we receive pity from God and so be purified from our sins by God is to do what Isaiah did. We must confess who we are. We are woeful sinners deserving of God's divine and eternal curse. We are unclean. Have you ever felt unclean in your heart? Perhaps you have deceived someone or you've shaded the truth and it's kind of eaten away at you and, and you feel terrible for it. Uh, perhaps you've spoken harshly to a friend, a, a family member or, or your spouse and you've been weighed down by that as you've walked away from it. Perhaps you've kind of verbally blown up at your children and they burst into tears. That will make you feel unclean. Have you ever been uncharitable or unkind to someone in need? For the children here, the youth here. Have you ever made fun of someone at school just to get a laugh from your friends and then you feel unclean? Or you feel unclean because you've clicked on something or you feel unclean because you've used your body to draw 
others' attention to yourself? Have you come to see, have you come to confess to the Lord that you're unclean? And and consider what Isaiah received at his confession of uncleanness. He received the pity of God. If you're thinking about confessing your sin, consider Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals, hides his transgressions, his uncleanness, will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. The promises of Scripture are always merciful and kind to those who confess their sins. Isaiah, he was not only a recipient of God's pity, but he was also a recipient of God's pardon. Uh, we, we must be purified, but we must also be pardoned. Our guilt, verse 7, must be taken away from the sight of God. If it is not, we will continue to stand condemned before God. And our guilt is real. When we feel guilty before God for our sin, it is because we are guilty before God for our sin. And our sin, as the end of verse 7, it needs to be atoned for. The penalty for Isaiah's sin had to be paid in order for Isaiah to be at peace with God. And we know that Isaiah's sin was atoned for because this was symbolized by that burning coal from the altar. We're given a hint that a sacrifice had been made. Isaiah's mind is being recalled to a past sacrifice. In the Old Testament, when believers went to the temple, they they laid their hands on a a sheep, thus symbolizing their sin was being transferred to that animal. And then that animal would be killed for them. That animal's blood would be shed and burnt upon the altar. It would take the punishment for their sin. And it seems to me that through this symbolic action, recalling to mind this altar, this sacrifice. The Lord was comforting Isaiah, reminding him that his sins have been paid for. A just remedy had been provided to satisfy the just God. And the good news for you and me is that the just remedy for God's wrath against our sins has been provided in Jesus Christ. You see, all of those Old Testament sacrifices that Isaiah and the ancient people of God depended upon for the forgiveness of their sins reached their fulfillment in the work of Jesus Christ. The old sacrificial system was a system which pointed beyond itself to a coming sacrifice which would deal with sins once and for all. Jesus' death on the cross would be a sacrificial atonement which would deal with sins fully and finally. It's why when when Jesus steps onto the scene in John's gospel, John the Baptist proclaims this in John chapter 1 verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus came to take away our sin and guilt. It's why the author of the Hebrews declares in Hebrews 9.26 that Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the wages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. That's why we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, that Jesus Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. And having finished His work, He sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Don't you see? Through Jesus Christ, God, out of loving pity, moves towards those who confess their sin. It's by crediting the innocent, righteous, and holy life of Jesus to repenting sinners That God is able to pardon sin. 
And it is a just pardon because the judgment against our sins have been paid to Jesus Christ in His death on the cross. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says that the wages, that's the payment due for working in sin. The wages of sin is death. Sin is how we've all spent our lives and our labors must be paid with a just wage. And the good news is that Jesus was paid our wages. And Jesus was paid them all. There's not a single sin, Christian, that you will bear the guilt for on the last day. Because Jesus was paid them all. And all to Him we owe. The sins of His people, not in part, but the whole, were nailed to the cross. And therefore, those who confess their sins like Isaiah and seek God for mercy will be given peace with God. And to assure us that God the Father has received the sacrifice of His Son, three days after His death, God raised Him from the dead, vindicating Him. We have proof that our sins have been paid for in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And friend, if you are here this morning and you're not a believer or follower of Jesus Christ, I want to invite you, urge you to come to Him in repentance and faith. Confess to God in your heart that you are unclean and that you want to be made clean. Confess that you are a sinner in need of God's pity and pardon. And believe that Jesus lived for you the righteous life that you have not lived. That none of us have lived. Believe that when Jesus died on the cross, He was paid the wages for your sin. And believe that God raised Him from the grave so that you might receive peace with God. And so be forever welcomed into His presence. And on the last day, see Him face to face. This is the good news of the Bible. And if you want to know more about this good news, please come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk with you more about this good news. Isaiah, he was confronted by the Holy God. And this led to his conviction of sin. And in God's mercy and grace, he was cleansed. But he was not through with him. God also commissioned him. And this is what we learn in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 8 to 13. So let's turn now and consider our third point commissioned to preach. And as we do, uh, let's read Isaiah chapter 6, verses 8 to 13. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing. But do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed 
is its stump. Here, here is Isaiah. He has seen the holy God. He has had his mouth purified and his sins forgiven. And it's at that moment that God looks around and says, Hmm, who will go for us? <laughs> it, it, it's, it's obviously a rhetorical question through which the Lord means for Isaiah to realize that he's now being called to a particular mission on God's behalf. After all, who has been given this vision and especially fitted for this mission to speak other than Isaiah? Before he hears what his orders will be, Isaiah steps forward and volunteers himself. I find this particularly striking. But it's the exact right response. See, wisdom in our day is knowing kind of what the job entails before you take the job. But Isaiah signs up for the job before he even knows what it entails. And this is the exact right response because God's the boss. He is the one giving the assignment. Yes, Isaiah can blindly trust God because he has seen and known God and has been known by God. He knows that God is merciful and good. Isaiah is no doubt eager to proclaim God's mercy and grace. Isn't this precisely what those who have been pardoned are eager to do? Christian, shouldn't you be eager to proclaim the pity, pardon, and peace of God? We all should. But did you notice what God commissions Isaiah to do and say? <coughs> Doesn't God essentially commission Isaiah to go and preach judgment upon the people of Israel? Hear, but don't understand what I'm saying. See, but don't perceive the truth that I'm proclaiming so that you'll be judged. We've already learned from the first chapter in the, the book that the problem with the people of Israel is not with comprehending God's word. No, the problem with the people of Israel is they willfully rejected their God. So Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, the Lord says of, of His people, Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against Me. The ox, the ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. See, the people of Israel, they had a pre-existing condition before Isaiah's preaching. And it was a hardness of heart toward God. Isaiah's calling then is to go and preach to a rebellious people, a people who are listening but tuning out God's word. Parents know what this is like. You know, you're, you're speaking and your children are standing there listening, but they're not really listening. Uh, you, you probably know what this is like because you've done it to your boss in a meeting that drags on and on and on, so you just kind of tune them out. Maybe you've done it to your spouse when you're looking at your phone. I'm not confessing anything here at the moment. I'm just raising the possibility that that happens. Uh, maybe you've even done it to a preacher. Uh, maybe you listen and don't really listen. Uh, such an attitude toward the Word of God in particular stems from a heart which is already dull to the things of God. Ears that are already heavy with the things of this world and eyes that are already blind to spiritual realities. Another prophet, prophet Zechariah, tells us of the spiritual state of the people of Israel. In Zechariah chapter 7, verses 11 and 12, we read these words. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and so stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard 
lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. The effect of Isaiah's preaching, the Lord says in verse 10, will multiply and increase the dullness of the people's hearts. His preaching will add weight to their already weighty ears. His preaching will provide additional layers of scales over the eyes of the people of Israel so they're in their blindness. The purpose of this preaching, as we see there toward the end of verse 10, is to ensure that they suffer the judgment that their sins deserve. The people of Jerusalem and Judah are guilty, and they deserve to suffer the consequences of their sin. God, in His holy justice, has determined that He will not grant the people of Israel the gift of repentance. Not in this season. Not under Isaiah's preaching. They have spurned God's love long enough, so he commissions Isaiah to preach. Isaiah's preaching will thus ensure and secure their judgment, their just judgment. And notice that Isaiah does not question God's mission. He doesn't accuse God of injustice. He doesn't say, this is wrong. This is unfair. These people deserve your grace. No, they don't. That is to misunderstand grace. Grace is unmerited. It is undeserved. What Israel deserves is destruction. Isaiah does not question God's justice, but he does ask how long he must proclaim this judgment. Isaiah, he clearly loves the people of Jerusalem and Judah. He's concerned for them. See, we can hold to the justness of God's justice while at the same time desire compassion and grace for sinners. The Lord answers in verses 11 through 13. And this answer is quite straightforward. Until the exile comes and is complete. Just as Adam and Eve were sent out of the Garden of Eden for the rebellion against the Holy God, so the people of Israel to be sent out of the promised land of Canaan for their rebellion against the Holy God. And this message was to be proclaimed until the exile was complete. What is so astounding is that we know from John 12 is that Jesus' teaching was met with unbelief. It was met with hardness of heart. In response to the unbelief of the people of Israel in Jesus' day, the Apostle John said that the people could not believe because of what Isaiah said. For the Apostle John, the unbelief of the people of Israel in Jesus' day was a fulfillment of this text. Prophecy can have multiple horizons of fulfillment. Though at one level, the people of Jesus' day had come out of exile, returned to the promised land, physically. At another level, they hadn't come out of exile. Physically, yes, the people had returned to the land, but spiritually, they were still far from God. That was made plain by their rejection of Jesus and His message. The message of judgment was to be proclaimed until all that was left of Israel was a stump. Like a felled tree, all that was to remain was a stump. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, here is a ray of light. In what would, might otherwise be a very dark passage, the tree will be felled, but not all is lost. There is hope in a stump. Verse 13 ends with these words, the holy seed is its stump. Don't just skip over that. That unclean, unholy, rotten tree of a people will be felled, 
And yet a holy seed remains in the stump. A small remnant of the people of Israel would survive the exile. There would be a righteous and faithful remnant that God would protect and preserve in the exile so that His Messiah and our Savior might come. Even when He felled the tree in exile, He would not let His promises to Adam or Abraham or David fail. And He did not let them fail. A stump remained. Do not underestimate the grace of God. The tree has to fall in order for Jesus to rise. Israel has to be punished and go into exile in God's plan so that salvation can ultimately be accomplished. And Isaiah is going to pick up this stump imagery. If you flip forward to chapter 11, if you look at verses 1 and 2, Isaiah is going to pick up this stump imagery and proclaim God's purposes. He says there in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Do you know what Jesus is going to say in Luke chapter 4, verse 18? He's going to say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus was from the line of David. He was from the stump of Jesse. This judgment here in Isaiah had to occur in Jesus' time too. Recall the scripture reading we heard from earlier in Mark Mark 4, earlier in the service. In his day and age, Jesus picked up this message from Isaiah 6 and he proclaimed that his preaching ministry was akin to Isaiah's preaching ministry. Jesus' teaching in parables was a form of judgment, except for those who would truly hear him. And that's why Jesus opens and closes the parable with an exhortation to hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus was pleading with the people gathered around him to truly hear what he was saying, to truly hear who he was. But, and this is a consequential but, but in order for God to accomplish his gracious plan of salvation through his son, there needed to be those who would not hear what Jesus was saying. There needed to be those who would not understand. Those who would see, but not perceive. There needed to be those who would refuse to accept Him as the Messiah. There needed to be those who would refuse to hear that He was the Word of God. There needed to be those who would continue in their rebellion against God so that they would crucify the Lord of glory. The Lord that Isaiah saw seated high and lifted up on the throne. Do you see how God's judgment on Jesus' generation actually led to salvation? Sometimes we despise a word of judgment as ungracious when in truth that is often where God's grace begins. So as we conclude, let me encourage you to have ears to hear this word from Isaiah. Friends, the judgment of the holy God is coming. An eternal exile is coming. And the only way to survive that judgment is to be united to the shoot that came up from the stump. The only way to survive the judgment of the holy God is if we are united to Jesus Christ by faith. Let us not spurn the word of correction that we've heard from God's word today. Let us not refuse the title sinner. Let us not reject the label unclean. 
Let us all join our voices with Isaiah and confess our sin. Let us all hear and know for certain that God has pity upon those who know they are unclean and so confess their sin. Let us all see and perceive that the blood of Jesus Christ can make the foulest clean. Let us hear and believe that He purchased our pardon on Calvary's tree. And let us, with joy, look forward to the day when our faith will give way to sight. When we will no longer hear visions, but see our King face to face. Let's pray together.